if you are a white woman in America, you have the privilege of being white, but at the same time, you also can understand oppression in certain ways by being a woman, right? So those two concepts actually together are very, very powerful because that privilege of being white too gives you the ability to use your voice in places where other people who are not white cannot. And at the same time, you have all of this power that's probably largely unrealized because as a woman in this country, a lot of that has been, you know, you've been receiving messages probably throughout your life that you don't have that power. So what we really want to do is empower this group to say, like, you can do this and make real change. And it doesn't have to be big change, right? Like, you do not have to run for Congress to make change. You can make tiny, intentional changes in your everyday life. And that is going to create this ripple effect of change that's going to benefit all of us. We welcome you to explore the third place with us. It is an invitation to the gray space, a space where deeper connections are fostered through challenging, challenging empowering, and, and engaging dialogue. You will walk away with a deeper understanding of self, equipped to engage with others in life's complex conversations. Thank you for listening. We invite you in to the third place. Well, almost exactly one year ago, we welcomed today's guests, Sarah and Masasha of the Dear White Women podcast, into the third place to talk about difficult conversations. So fast forward to today, and we have done virtual events together at two different expos. And we are Mary and I are super fans of the Dear White Women podcast, but it's also been really fun to say that we've become really good friends. So Sarah and Masasha, thank you for being here today. Oh my gosh, are you kidding? I'm so excited that we get to share this time and have a conversation. And can I also just say, I met the beautiful Mary in person and we got to actually raise a glass together and that was fantastic. So I love all of this synergy that came from random connections in the internet. So jealous about that live <laughs> meeting, by the way. Thanks for bringing that up again, Sarah. Yeah, me too. Wrote <laughs> that in your face, right. California. All right, Miss Sasha, we're going to work on something. I know, right? We'll make them jealous, yeah. Of their own exclusive event. No, it was so <laughs> special. I remember Sarah was like, you're taller than I thought. Because <laughs> all I see is a square, right? We see each other in these Zoom rooms or whatever platforms we all use. And and it's amazing to see like people in their glory and their full energy. Yeah, just to like to to have eye contact for a second and shoot the shit. It was so cool. And so special and then realize like I'm like oh my god that was a tease I want to see her way more and then I can't imagine if I got to see Misasha too so you guys can have your own powwow and we'll keep doing our own thing too and then eventually all of us will come together well, I was thinking on the next trip that I do to Denver we need to just coordinate and then all four of us can get together hey I'm all for that, that Misasha come on out here right I'm glad also Mary's response was not well you're shorter than I expected <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't say it out loud. (laughs) 
didn't well, that's actually the first thing. Isn't that a chapter in a book? No, that's yeah. the first thing that Sarah said to me also when she was like, Mary's fantastic. And she's tall. She's like your height. So I think that's all. It's, I'm done. <laughs> Uh, I do just need to start wearing platforms all over the place, folks. I think this is the lesson, okay? I don't even think I'm that tall, but then I realize that 5'7 is pretty tall for a 5'7 and three quarters. But <laughs> can, can we just all also put this in the macro per- thing of like, isn't it all about our own perspectives here? Folks? Yeah. <laughs> like, they're tall to me, but they're not tall to other people who are six feet. So yeah. life is all about perspectives. <laughs> Oh, I love that, which is kind of the theme of what we're going to talk about. Like, I think what's crazy, so as you, as we've said, and we have not been shy about the fact being super fans and really good friends now, is that you guys had been podcasting, I guess it was like a year or a year and a half prior to us starting, and we were so amazed at what you had done in short, such a short amount of time that I know that anything you've shared with us has been something that we've tried to implement and bring in that level of authenticity and what's current. And so you've been really pivotal in our podcasting experience. And then to be that at that stage, a year and a half in, you guys decide to do something pretty radical and write a book. Um, I'm wondering, so the book's called Dear White Women, Let's Get Un- Let's Get Uncomfortable Talking About Racism. Why now did you decide to do that at that stage of having had a podcast for a year, year and a half, embarking on writing a book? I mean, first of all, for you to say that we inspired you is fantastic and such an honor because the stuff you two have been doing is fire. Like your conversations and the things that you're bringing to the table have been incredible. So we're super thrilled for you both and just really proud of you. Um, but the book and the why now, I mean, I had my own, like, I'm sorry, Misasha, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Why the heck, probably not, <laughs> heck was not the actual word that I used at that point. Like, why are we doing this book right now? And it was Misasha's answer that I would love to have um, shared. Yes. So first of all, thank you so much, Mary, David, for having us back on, you know, to say that we are inspired by you two is is not sufficient. You guys are motivating to us in so many different ways. And so we're always so excited to share space with you two. So I've been personally excited about this for like ever since we set it up. So, okay, now on to the answer of this like very big question. And, you know, when we were thinking about writing the book, it was not just during the pandemic, but it was particularly at this point where we were heading into the 2020 election, right? So it was a particularly divisive time in the country. And we had just come out of the summer where, you know, we saw horrific things happen, like George Floyd's murder right in front of our eyes. And so when Sarah asked me, like, you know, and this was more of a best friends than business partner sort of question, when she's like, why why are we writing this book now? Why should we write this book now? And I said the first thing that came to mind, which is my truth, which is, you know, I'm trying to save my kids' lives. And Mm. it was, to me, that is still true, right? Because if one person reads this book and can be that upstander for my kids, you know, when, not if, when they are going to be challenged because of the color of their skin, 
or anyone else, you know, who looks like my kids, if there's one person out there who changes their behavior, then we're good. This whole project has been worthwhile. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, that's really powerful to hear and makes a lot of sense because, you know, the reality is you guys are entering into very, a specific, but very difficult conversation. And I'm sure that even with your podcast, you face backlash, right? Like what happens when a white woman says, I don't have privilege, which I think is the first chapter in your book. And I would imagine you're going to get some negative reviews and those can dominate your mind. So to have a why like that, where it really is about your kids and it becomes so much more personal, it gives you the fuel to keep going when it gets really hard. In writing this book and hosting the podcast, have you found white women to be receptive to the message? Or when you point out the privileges, do most agree? Does it take time? What does that look like exactly? I mean, I think just like there's no monolith for black people or Asian people, there's no monolith for white people. And so I think it depends on the person. You know, we certainly have gotten pushback at the beginning of our show when we launched Dear White Women. They're like, you're racist. You're saying white people. And then with our book, even before it was launched, we have people leaving reviews, like negative reviews saying, I couldn't read this racist stuff. And you're like, the book's not even out yet. So you're <laughs> definitely just responding to us using the word white. Whereas I think society is, you know, a general thing, probably everyone's pretty comfortable saying Asian or black or like referring to other racial groups. So it's interesting, the prickliness that that, trigger, that, that triggers when you just name white as a race. That said, I think we've gotten way more positive feedback because the people who are going to engage in this conversation are usually people who are like, at least a little curious or are kind of like, what can I do? Or what do I not even know that I don't know? And so that has been the incredible part of it where we get feedback from school districts, people being like, we're using this in the classroom, or I'm going to go campaign the government of this state to change the laws here because of this show, or like those things fuel are like, I mean, I just do it because I feel like these are important conversations and this is my purpose to continue them. But it definitely feels good when you get those sorts of points of feedback and people speaking up in a positive way, not just in a negative way. And what do you say to the potential readers that see immediately Dear White Woman and they're not a white woman about how they should still engage in reading with the book? I mean, because I, I could see that immediately people are like, oh, well, I'm not a white woman, so I'm not going to read this. So what do you say to that potential reader? I think the book is, I mean, it's obviously called Dear White Women, partially because that is also our platform as a whole. But, you know, I had my black husband reading this book and he was like, yeah, I mean, a lot of the beginning part about being white in America. Yeah. And being black in America. I, I live it. But there is also a third section that is called, you know, being a non-black person of color in America. So I think that regardless of race, there is something that to be taken away from this book, you know, and it, it may not be so heavily in the learn section because each chapter is sort of broken into listen, where it's a personal narrative, learn, where you're really being educated, right, on how we got to this place or why this is an issue that we should be concerned about and then act. And I think a lot of people, regardless of race, get stuck in the act and where to go from there. So I think there's something in there for everyone. I will say that if you've been involved in this work in a really long time, it may not be 
you know, this may not be an earth shattering book for you, right? But I think even as Sarah and I were, well, I'll just speak for myself, while I was writing this part, and, you know, we wrote different sections, I learned a lot. And, you know, we've been talking about this on this podcast at that point for over a year and a half, I'd been living it, you know, and living questions of identity my entire life. So it was still something that I found to be powerful. Not just because yeah. I'm biased, because, you know, I partially Because the book this. rocks and we're <laughs> awesome. Yeah, because <laughs> of that, really. So... Yeah, I mean, I think the reason the way we position it is really it's like an anti-racism 101, right? All the things that you did, weren't taught in the education system, but really wish you had learned the stories about why you should care of how it's playing out and affecting people. And like you said, Misasha, this stuff about acting, but I'd love for you to talk a little bit about why we called it Dear White Women in the first place, because then you can understand that it's not just for white people, but we have a reason why we were reaching out to white women in particular. Yeah. And I, I will say that that is a question that we get asked all the time, right? Like, by, you know, by my white mother, right? Why do we call it Dear White Women? And I think that white women are in a unique position in America, right? Because if you are a white woman in America, you have the privilege of being white, but at the same time, you also can understand oppression in certain ways by being a woman, right? So those two concepts actually together are very, very powerful because that privilege of being white too gives you the ability to use your voice in places where other people who are not white cannot. And at the same time, you have all of this power that's probably largely unrealized because as a woman in this country, a lot of that has been, you know, you've been receiving messages probably throughout your life that you don't have that power. So what we really want to do is empower this group to say like, you can do this and make real change. And it doesn't have to be big change, right? Like you do not have to run for Congress to make change. You can make tiny, intentional changes in your everyday life. And that is going to create this ripple effect of change that's going to benefit all of us. Well, and I think one of the things that is unique about the book, so you have the three different sections. You have on being white in America, on being black in America, on being a non-black person of color in America. So just like a white woman has the unique perspective of seeing her own privilege, but also seeing repression in her lived experiences, you both have a personal connection to all three of these perspectives. I think that is unique to bring to the table. Sarah, what you just said too, uh, and just as you both were talking about writing the book, it sounded like there was still a lot more to learn. Like when on one of the coffee fests that we presented at together, we talked a lot about having this humility posture, having a curiosity posture. And so what I just heard in that is like, it's not that you've arrived, it's that you're continuing to learn. And they're all like still required to bring this posture to the table. So can you speak to that about your collective experiences that you're trying to share with the book? Yeah, you know, both of us are biracial. Misasha and I both have a white parent and then a Japanese immigrant parent each. And so I think by virtue of our like home upbringing, we were both raised to understand that there are definitely more than one way of living in this world, more than one culture, and then how to bridge those gaps. But I think what we bring to the table as a partnership, I mean, aside from the fact that I'm more life coach, positive psych, you know, wellness and energy, and Misasha's the lawyer, amateur historian, analytical, and 
can do research like nobody's business about all the factual stuff that we present in the book, but I'm married to a white Canadian man and I have white presenting kids. And so I have, I mean, I don't even know if he knows that I use him as a test case for what does a white man think, <laughs> but I certainly, having lived in Arizona and in Colorado for a long period of time, which are largely white areas, have really been able to float undetected in some ways in a lot of white spaces. So we were able to understand what conversations were and were not happening in those spaces. And then, Misasha, I'll let you talk about the other stuff. Yeah. I, well, I tell Sarah, I'll text her sometimes and I'll say, you know, I just played Ask a Black Man because like in my house, literally my husband who is black, like we have, since the day we met, a large portion of our conversation, not all of them, because yeah, uh, you don't want to see our text and, and um, email history. But a lot, of, yeah, a lot of it is about race, right? And I, I think because of who we are fundamentally, like, he is black, you know, comes from right outside New Orleans and has a very different lived experience in this country than I do. So that lens and what he is teaching our sons about that, which is something I can't teach them, right? But it's something they need to know is invaluable. But that's also something that black lived experience that should be taught to everyone, right? Because it affects everyone. And I think that being biracial, like Sarah, identity is always a question, right? Because people really want to try and simplify things, because I understand you you want to fit things neatly into boxes. So you're either white or you're Japanese, but it's very hard to be both a lot of the times. And I think from an early age, when people are trying to slot you into things, and I mean, even even on the census, right? Not until 2000 could you actually say you were more than one thing. You weren't just checking the other box. It is a question of understanding different narratives than the ones that are taught to you in school and the ones that might be prevalent in your communities, especially if your communities are largely white. And so I think that that is the lens that we bring to this book. And that's why it's so personal for both of us. I was just going to say that I, you know, just the whole listen, learn, act. So what's so amazing about having a book and really distilling it down to this, what you guys call really a 101, is that especially for white women who are revolved in mostly communities that are predominantly white, like they don't have the opportunity to ask a black man, right? And then I'm sitting here like I really, I don't have that opportunity and I'm jealous of that, which I think was interesting. I was sitting here. I was like, I want to play that game and, and get that insight. And so the book feels like a way to bridge that for me where I get to be in the listen and learning stage without having it, you know, being that my, you know, changing my community is a far bigger ask and a far bigger shift than being able to do that within the community that I'm in. And that that feels like the book is the, the bridging of the gap to that. So the listening is the stories, and then the learning is really kind of the facts and the research behind it. Are there any stories in the book that you share that you found to be the most instrumental in your own learning that you could maybe give a tease to? You know, I think one of the stories, and we open the book with this story, is the difference between a white man who went jogging and a black man who went jogging. And in the story, the, the white man's my husband. Like I asked my husband these questions about like, because he goes for a run, like, what is it like for you? And then one of our friends is a black man and he likes to go jogging. And it was, we we talked to him throughout the years, 
but in particular after Ahmaud Arbery was killed. He said, look, I've done all of these things, these unwritten rules that are in my worldview that I need to do differently in contrast to what my white husband has to do. You know, he wears bright clothing, tracks his route, make sure his family knows. He says, I'll be gone 30 to 40 minutes. If it's been longer than that, you need to start tracking my phone. And if you can't find me, you need to call the police. My husband has never, ever had to think about that, say anything about that. And so what our friend said was, I did all of these things, the same that Ahmaud Arbery did, and he got killed. Yeah. You know, there's no guarantee that I do all of these things and I'm still going to be safe and make it home. And so when I had those two stories like juxtaposed like that, it really made me think, holy smokes, this is just a dude who wants to go out and exercise. Look at the different hurdles that they each have to go through or don't have to go through. Yeah. I mean, the only time that 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 is a common occurrence in my household because my husband's going in the middle of nowhere in the back country in avalanche terrain, right? It's like, it's an actual thing you should be considering your potential loss of life, not going around your neighborhood for 30 minutes. I really appreciate that because just in that moment, I was like, well, the extremity of whether you should be thinking of your potential loss of life or not in something that should be so routine, that is a really, really powerful story. And I think as women, any women listeners might be able to relate to this a little bit, right? Because Yeah, just going out in the dark or in the city right? or by yourself, anything. Like, we've all felt that. Have you worn something a little different or taken a different route because this one's you know better lit than the other one? Or had your keys in between your fingers before you go to your car? Like, we've fake done phone that. phone call. Yes. Always the fake phone call. <laughs> we've got adaptive mechanisms, but we live a slightly higher stress level than men who would be doing the same thing, perhaps, right? Again, that's a broad brush statement, but we can get it. And again, that's why when we talk about white women or women in general, we have that experience, that lived understanding, at least mm. a little bit of what that might be like. And I think for me, in writing some of the narratives, especially in the being black in America section, like I am thinking back to Philando Castile and, you know, listening to the 40 seconds, right, or, or reading the transcript of the 40 seconds that he had that interaction with the police officer in which he was killed in his car, you know, and then as we're writing this book and editing this book, we've heard so many more stories that are the exact same narrative. And in the, you know, being a non-Black person of color section where we talk about the Asian hate or we talk about immigration, and then to hear these stories come up again and again and again, I think it highlights like why this book is so powerful in some ways, because it is talking about these narratives, but it's also why it's so needed because we are still, we are not in this post-racial, you know, society like 2020 didn't just happen and then we fixed everything, right? Or everyone's so aware now that, you know, we're moving on to some different and better plane. I, I think we are still in it. And so that's why for me, writing it and then thinking about it after we wrote it has been both painful and powerful. There's a chapter in your book about looting, I think that is very difficult for a lot of people to hear. And I'd really love to hear kind of more about the story behind that chapter and why is when we have something that we want to protest, when we have something that we want to raise our voice, and you have all of this tension where our voice can never be raised, it's just never enough. And finally, it's like that all this rage has to come out and it takes the form of looting. 
What do you respond to that? Or how do we learn from that? And how do we hear the voices better so it doesn't get to that point? Or when someone is looting, you know, how do we listen to that voice? You know, the looting chapter, and it starts with the Rodney King, right, beating and subsequent verdict and the looting that happened when I was growing up in Los Angeles. And the reason it starts with that is because I had a lot of unlearning to do around what I thought about looting. Because when I was a freshman in high school, this was when all of the Rodney King, the verdict and the looting came down. And I remember, you know, this, I start talking about how my dad never came to school and he came and picked me up, you know, and the sky is black because of the fires. And it was portrayed by the media as this huge standoff, right? You've got like these black looters, you've got these Korean store owners like on their roofs, like with guns. It was just, there was a lot of violence and violence was the focus, right? Of the media. And it was like, look how these people are handling this verdict and look at the property damage and what they're destroying their own communities, right? And I think that was the entire message. And that was the message that I carried with me, you know, from that moment, right? I was like, why would you, why would you destroy your own communities? That seems so wrong. Like, I don't understand why anyone loots. And that is the message that a lot of us have, right, around looting. And that is the message that came back up last summer, right? In the summer of 2020. I think that was the message that was coming out. But the thing about messages, right, is that it's seen from a specific perspective. And I think it's impossible for me to understand how painful it is, right, to continually have to justify your very existence in this country when no one seems to care. And so I think that looting is not something about destruction, right? It's maybe in some rare instances or lesser instances, it is, right? But it is an outlet, you know? And I think the chapter really goes into that. Like, let's think about what has gotten us to this point. How have communities of color been persecuted throughout our country's history to create situations where there is so much emotion that it just comes out, right? And I think that there have been so many ways in which peaceful protests have not worked, right? Colin Kaepernick took a knee. He doesn't play in the NFL anymore. You know, like, I can't imagine if this was flipped, right? And we have a majority of people feeling like their rights have been that they're being killed, that they're being persecuted, that no one cares, and that they're expected to just be silent about it, right? Or have some sort of approved manner of, you know, having a sign and saying like, okay, now it's been, you know, 400 years, we're still asking to be treated equally. So let's just have another sign and have another march, right? And I had a lot of conversations with different Black people in my life about this chapter in particular, because I really wanted to understand, or not even to understand, because I can't, right? To to see that from a different perspective. And I think that's that's the question, right? Like, what perspective are we looking at things through? What narrative is being told to us? And are we going to question that narrative, right? What are the questions that we're asking? And I love what you said, David, about listening, right? And asking questions, because I think that is what it moves the needle in how we see each other. And especially with both of you being half Japanese, I want to take 
you know, a, a leap to this third section of your book, which is about people of color. One of the pieces is with COVID and the pandemic over this last year, you know, the quote unquote dangers of the China flu. Uh, you shared a story in there, Sarah, that I thought is just, it's similar to this whole white man versus black man running. It seems simple, but it's profound. I'd love it if you would share that with us because I think that it's just as important to wrapping up sort of the three themes of your book. So I was at a King Super, like I was at a supermarket and I was in the checkout line and it was when like people were abiding a little bit more by those six foot apart dots, you know, in the checkout line and we're all standing there separated, but it was full. It was a packed you know, store, everyone, all the disinfectants are in everyone's carts and the toilet paper aisle was totally empty. I mean, it was that time. You remember those times? And I had a mask on and I had like a tickle and I'm like, no, don't do it. Don't do it. Because I think, and I can't tell. I I mean, I don't know what people's perception are of me, right? I'm mixed race, but I kind of look Asian. I look nebulously. I don't know, something. And I had a mask on, so you can only see my eyes. And I'm like, fuck and i sneezed like i just remember being like and i don't i don't do subtle sneezes there's I mean, no holding me back my sneezes. now <laughs> oh i have like the shake the windows kind of sneeze at oh, the best God. of times like i have to close my eyelids or my eyeballs will flow out of my face kind of sneeze <laughs> so it's this enormous sneeze in an otherwise quiet fairly tension-filled supermarket and i sneezed and instantly i was like Arr! like i felt like eyeballs looked at me so to deflect a tense moment with humor, I was like, literally raise my hands up. And I'm like, it's not COVID. And people sort of chuckled and laughed and then like went back to their business. But I was really just that moment of tension. You know that you feel the tension. And I was like, I don't know what to do other than joke. Like I can't, I can't do anything else about it. And so did you, did you experience any of, you know, being half Asian? Did you, especially, and maybe not at that stage, because that story really was so early on that everyone I think was feeling that insecurity around having any symptom of any kind and being around someone and the whole conversation of consent started to happen. And so then what about how things un- evolved when news starts to say, oh, it was manufactured by, um, and this was, this was man-made or anything that had come up and it was all sort of targeting China as, as it being a, a Chinese flu. What was either of yours experience during that time? And did you, did that change just compound the already tense nature of it all? For me personally, I didn't feel like I was going to be looked at funny aside from that moment where I think everybody was tense, but I could tell you so many different stories. First of all, I was terrified that my mom who lives in New York was going to go to, she goes to the supermarket. I'm like, just be careful. Like, people would look sideways. My friend was commuting to New York City on the train and would be looked at sideways and definitely had a few comments go back to where you came from. You brought the, okay. Then I had a friend of mine's elderly mother at the like Metro card, like the ticket buying center for the New York City subway, knocked down, had to go to the ER because she hit her head on the concrete. Like these things are real. And so many people in the media, because the media stopped reporting on it after that first wave of hate attacks, people didn't realize that they were continuing to happen to people of Asian descent. Right. And so there was a low level fear that I certainly lived with for a very long time. And, you know, Misasha, I think, you know, you were on the other coast, your family's on the other coast. What did you think? Yeah. I mean, I had to call my dad 
because I was terrified. I was like, this guy survived cancer. Like, I was like, you know, he's he's gotten his, you know, COVID shots. Like, it can't be – if cancer or COVID isn't going to take him, it can't be some racist on the street. Like, and we had this super awkward, like – very Japanese conversation where we basically didn't say what I really wanted to say or, or maybe what he wanted to say, but I just was, I didn't ever think I'd have to tell my father. I'm so worried about, you know, the three men and boys who live in my house that it it never occurred to me that until what happened with COVID that I was going to be scared for my father. And so what was worse, and, you know, there were stories from friends and acquaintances of being harassed on the street. It did not happen to me. But my son, I was upset after I'd gotten off the phone with my father. And he said, you know, why are you upset? And I said, well, you know, I'm worried about grandpa because of this. And then he looked at me and he was like, are you going to be safe? And I was like, oh, crap. Like, I, this is, it's your worst fear, right? You don't want your kids worrying about you. And I was like, I'm literally still worried about you guys. Like I, you know, and it was, it's one of those moments where you're like, what are we living in? Like, how, you know, I couldn't even answer really. Like I, you know, I just did my parent best. But yeah. I think one of the things about all of this is that you know, I know that there have been, I've been, I've been in big rooms where we do presentations like this. And there've been questions from white people who are like, but I think you're overreacting. Like, Ooh. and they've, some people have been like to the family who said their son, they don't let him wear hoodies around our nice white suburban area. Like you're overreacting. They'll be fine here. And I think there's people who are like, you all are not, like, this doesn't happen. Like they don't believe that this fear is legitimate. And I think what people are forgetting is it's really freaking random. Like you don't know when someone's going to go by my mom and smash her head in because she's Asian. Like it, you don't know when that particular police officer at that particular moment in time is going to kill you for a traffic stop. Like you just don't know because it is such deep embedded perspectives and triggers that we all have. And I think that's why I just want people to understand that like like, you know, the fear that we were talking about earlier as a woman, like you walk out the door and like you have the skirt on or whatever, and you're just kind of, it'd be like someone being like, you're overreacting. Nothing would ever happen to you as a woman. You're fine. But you know, you carry that, like just a little bit more of an antenna all the time. I think that's what we're talking about where it's like this low level stress is consistently there with the way that this society is shaped. None of these conversations are comfortable right? It's not comfortable for my mom as a Japanese woman to talk about her identity. It's not comfortable for a black person to talk about identity. It's not comfortable for white people to talk about identity. It's just, it's this weird but necessary thing that we go through because we judge each other as humans based on appearance, right? Like it's just how we are. But I think that there is a way to welcome people into the conversation to understand these nuances by building on empathy and to help people recognize privilege or how we work together by really melding this understanding of how we work as human beings, like every single one of us and how we have operated as a society. Like it's multi layers of learning. But the only thing that I think is necessary, the main thing that I think is necessary for this is a willingness to be introspective, like to open and learn and sort of be in this process of what am I noticing? What's going on for me right now? Why do I care about this conversation? You know? And so I think 
that's what we hope to do with this book and with these conversations is not to make you feel like shit for being who you are. It's understanding that we are all, like you both have said and really inspired me with this whole, let's remember we are one in 7 billion people. We have one perspective and there are so many other experiences out there. How can we like blow our experiences up and like open our eyes and really remember that at the core of it, we're people, we have different experiences and what can we do to help each other out? Cause none of us lives in a vacuum. You just said so many amazing things and I have about 10 things to offer. But one thing I want to definitely say is that I feel like what just came to me is that the randomness doesn't lessen the significance. And it makes me think of even the pandemic, you know, right now, everything about COVID is random, doesn't mean we have to then treat it in such a way that, that it's insignificant. And I think that that's what I'm feeling like there's just these themes of all the trauma over the last few years that are coming to a head from generations and generations of trauma. And I just think that that's so profound to to call out that the that it's the randomness doesn't lessen the significance. And also, you know, you as a positive coach, right? What's it, what's it referred to as? Is it literally positive coaching? Positive psychology, life coaching? positive psychology, life coaching. So we're kind of talking about like a little bit of a level of fear to motivate. I'm curious, is it important to tap into the fear and the negativity in order to move through um, the journey to anti-racism? Or is your book trying to emulate more of a positive take on something so not positive? It's a great question. I think naturally, psychologically, we all are able to default to fear. It's a fear is a primal emotion that keeps uh, or like a primal state that keeps us alive, right? So we focus more on fear than we do on keeping the perspective that there's actually a whole other realm of moving through the world. I don't think we intentionally lead with fear because I don't think that intellectually, I don't think that's a healthy way to be. And I think what we really try to do in this book is build empathy and ideally, and I think Misasha has said this explicitly in the book, is that we have hope because this next generation of kids coming up, for example, mm-hmm. they're blowing my mind with how open-minded they are, with how much they understand that we all are different. You know, my kid's school goes through their preferred pronouns at school. The number of kids who are happier to identify their gender identity and their sexual identity at a younger age than it was ever discussed for me when I was growing up. They give us hope. And I think along with all of that introspection that they're doing about their identities, race is another identity. And they're able to look at it, examine it, understand it, and communicate it in this incredible way. And I think no matter how we interact with our children. Children are learning about these things. So why not take the mantle and lead our children and be in that discovery process with them to help model a sense of community, safety, we can all be in it together and be part of that conversation. So I think that really is our tone as opposed to one of fear. I was planning to ask one more question, but I think you just answered it. Uh, Like for me, this work does seem so overwhelming, no end in sight. And as a white male, my perspective over the last decade has changed, but it feels so overwhelming. The thing is, I've only had to think through it in that way for 25% of my life. And I still have the privilege to not think about it. Um, mm. I can unplug. What I'm curious to know is like, 
you know, what is it that constant feeling like you have no option to plug in and out of feeling racism? How do you keep it going? And like I said, it, it maybe sounds like part of the answer at least is that you have hope for the future. Yeah, I think that we didn't learn a lot of stuff, right, in school that we probably should have learned. And we weren't taught to think about race in any way except to be shushed about it, right, or not ask questions. Um, But I think what gives, you know, as Sarah mentioned, hope is, is a really powerful thing. It is a choice, too, right? Hope is a choice that we have. And I think that even though it may be hard to influence our generation in certain ways or the generations like our parents' generation, we have these kids. If nothing else, right, it does seem overwhelming. And a lot of um, a lot of sitting with the questions that you have for yourself is uncomfortable, right? I am constantly uncomfortable in these conversations and in this work. And even in, in conversations I have, you know, with my husband, because it really challenges me on things that I have thought or believed to be true for a long time. But we have kids, we have another generation who is open, as Sarah was talking about, you know, my kids ask questions about things that I would have never asked my parents, right? And they are having discussions in class, even in elementary school, that are so different. And so what personally keeps me going through the discomfort, through you know, the the fear that I personally have, you know, is that hope, right? It's that we just, we want to have things better for our kids than we had them. And th- there's nothing that's really as motivating as trying to make it better for, for someone else, right? Because then, you know, Sarah and I have been talking about this a lot, right? But it, it decenters you in this, right? And it looks at us and especially those next generations as a collective. And I think there is such power in that. Yeah, it's cool to shift from like the uncomfortable conversation with an older generation for us and feeling like it's more like swimming upstream. Whereas like I get I can't believe how many times I've actually felt uncomfortable talking to any of the Gen Z or the high schoolers that I work with where I'm like, oh, you know, saying they them didn't come as naturally as it did to them. And, (laughs) and that actually is just as motivating. If you want, if you want to feel uncomfortable, talk to it to someone in the younger generation that some of this conversation and this collective that we're talking about is just the way they operate. It's not even a a forethought. You don't have to think for 10 seconds prior to making a, a statement or share an opinion. It's just so it's really pretty powerful. But when you finally get the pronoun right and you say they, them, how does it feel? Uh, it feels so damn good, honestly. And just to, because because I think that I, and I hope that a lot of people are like this, but it is that empathy thing that I just want someone to feel respected. So even if I don't say it right, I want to be able to fuck up, quite frankly. And I want to be able to feel like they know I'm trying. And that's a huge piece of what we do with the third place and that you guys do with Dear White Women is the shift from I'm not racist to anti-racist is like, can we participate in the conversation more and not have the underrepresented party or the party that's grieving or the party that is experiencing the racism have to take on the burden of teaching us and participating so heavily? Can we take some of that on? That's definitely something that I think is aligned with our two whys. Totally. And what you just said, which is that when you get it right, or when you're trying on and you're 
growing yourself, it feels so damn good. It really feels good. And so that's why, I mean, this book is a great starting place for just like level setting all the stuff you never learned in school and understanding a little thing that you can do, like whether it is a pronoun or leaving that at the bottom of your your signature or whatever. There are all these things we can do and it feels good for everyone mm-hmm. to be learning and growing and trying something different to to show respect for all those in our community. Yeah, it definitely feels like the path is that introspection, realizing that there were this one in 7 billion. And so kind of moving in that direction and also moving towards we collectively are one. We are truly one body. And so we, as we work through it, it's moving in both directions, which feels the opposite, but it connects. Well, uh, again, I mean, I just love all of your work and I can't wait to have our listeners read this book. Where can we find this? You can find it on that place where it always offers two-day free shipping if you're a Prime <laughs> member. Uh, no, so it is available on Amazon. You can find it in your bookstores and a lot of sort of local but chain bookstores. You can buy it at bookshop.org and always at our website at dearwhitewomen.com. Well, like you guys, it sounds like it's mutual, even though, side note, after we recorded la- a year ago, almost to the day with you guys, which we already mentioned... <laughs> Afterwards, I had the most massive imposter syndrome. <laughs> and so David remembers this day because I remember I was like, oh man, they are so brilliant. I was beyond myself. And so it's really cool to like a year, flash forward to a year later to have a community with you guys and to be able to have conversations like this. Uh, like this is what it's all about for us. So again, Thank you. Everyone knows that it's mutual between all of us. Clearly, we get to fangirl and fanboy back and forth on this. But thank you again. You guys must check out the book. And this will probably be part two of many more times to have you guys back on. You rock. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Be well. Third Place Podcast is produced by Podcast Publishing House. If you like what you're hearing, follow us and subscribe at all of your favorite platforms, Apple, Spotify. Also check out the episodes on our website, thirdplacepodcast.com, for additional resources and transcriptions of our episodes. The Third Place is all about continuing the conversation, so make sure you follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Third Place Podcast. There you can check out our weekly co-host, Happy Hours, on IGTV. And if you like what you're hearing and want to continue to support our work, you can check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash third place podcast.